Advent. We are in the season of Advent. And you might start to see decorations on the wall, anticipation for Christmas. Indeed, Advent is part of the church's liturgical calendar. And in our context, we, we tend to see Advent as a joyful anticipation of the coming of Christ, both originally and when he's born, which we'll celebrate on December 25th, and his second coming. And that's right. There's a sense in which we joyfully anticipate Christ's coming. We ought to rejoice in the reality of Christ's incarnation in the world. But there's another side to that as well. See, Advent is also waiting. Waiting for God to act to save people out of a darkness, to deliver them from the evil and suffering that they face in the world. Consider Christ's first coming as a baby in a manger. At that time, the Lord hadn't spoken to his people in hundreds of years. And so many Israelites sit there waiting, wondering, Lord, where are you? Rome has ascended to power. We are dispersed across the globe. None of this looks the way that we thought it would look. God, where are you? An author named Fleming Rutledge put it this way, Advent is the season that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Our text today features a woman who is in her own season of crying out for deliverance, desperately asking the Lord to intervene in her painful suffering and circumstances. It's the story of a woman named Naomi, a woman who lost nearly everything. And yet we see that even in her deepest hardships and our own, the Lord continues to care and to bless So as we walk through chapters 1 and 2 of Ruth today, I want to focus on one big idea, one thing I want to put in front of you, hope in the Lord in your sorrows. I want you to hope in the Lord in your sorrows. That's the call to us today. So if you're here and you're beaten down, if you've lost people, if you struggle with health or anger in your own circumstances, if you mourn the seeming flourish of injustice across the globe, If you look around and you ask, God, where are you? Our text today tackles that very question. Because God is here. Think of the name of this very church, Emmanuel, God is with us. But it's not always clear. It's not always obvious to us. Beneath that, I want to focus on three observations as we walk through this narrative. First, we want to turn to the Lord with imperfect faith. Second, We ought to love people like the Lord loves us. And third, we need to remember that the Lord is with his people, always. With that introduction, let's dive in. We'll start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And this is a narrative, right? So it's a story. It's a story that we've all, uh, the kind of story we've all heard since we're young children. These first five verses give us the setting. So let's hear the setting for our story. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, 
and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Shilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Shilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Like any good story, Ruth begins with an introductory line, much like once upon a time in a land far, far away. But what we hear is in the days that the judges ruled. It could also be translated, and so it was during the time that the judges judged. This line draws us in, but it gives us valuable context for our story. You see, in the days that the judges rules tells us something important about Ruth, the book of Ruth. It tells us where and when in redemptive history that this story takes place. And during the times of the judges is not good news for our characters. You see, in the, in the time of the judges, as, as we see in the end of the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel was in a continual downward spiral throughout the book of Judges. What we see is that the people start well, they fall into sin, the Lord brings discipline, usually through the oppression of a foreign nation. The people cry out in their suffering and say, Lord, deliver us. Where are you? And so the Lord raises up a judge, delivers them, and then the process starts again. But what we see throughout the entire book is it's, it's not an upward trajectory. It's a slow, downward trajectory of sin and rebellion. And by the end of the book, we see some truly heinous activity by the Israelites. The tribe of Benjamin at Gibeah participates in what is unqualified evil, and it leads to civil war. This is the context broadly for Ruth. It highlights the other side of Advent. People who are faithful in the Lord crying out, Lord, where are you as the days are evil, as evil flourishes, as evil men continue to prosper? Where are you? And that's why Ruth is a gift to us. It testifies to the reality that God is good and he's still at work even in the dark times. These first five verses also give us some, uh, some background and some setting for the characters as well. So we know that they're living in the time of Judges. This is, uh, you know, this is before the kingship of Saul, but it's after they've entered the Promised Land. But these particular characters, we need to know a little bit about them too. We hear about Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, who decides to go to Moab because of a famine. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, famine was one of the things that God said would be a consequence of living unfaithfully to the covenant with the Lord. So it's reasonable to assume that this famine is a result of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. And so Elimelech somewhat practically says to himself, well, there's no food here. I'm going to go to Moab where there is food. Commentators have some kind of the debate or thinking, okay, is Elimelech being sinful in going to Moab? The author doesn't say explicitly, 
And since Deuteronomy talks about famine being a punishment for the rebellion of the people, it's reasonable to think that Elimelech should have stayed and tried to lead his family and his people into repentance. At the very least, I think we have to say that Elimelech, by leaving the covenant people of God to go to Moab, is trusting in earthly wisdom. It makes all the practical sense in the world to go to a place where there's food. But it doesn't make sense to leave the Lord's people. What is clear is that what they're giving up by leaving Israel is instrumental to the lives of Israelites at the time. What they're, what they're abandoning is their land in Israel, and land was crucial. It's both a source of food and survival. It's also a part of their identity as people of God in the promised land. And that land is promised to be passed down through generations, so it's also their future. It's all of these things. It's, it's provision. It's their future with God's covenant people. And so to leave the land, to leave one's inheritance, is a massive loss and a serious change. This is what they're leaving behind. But the text also tells us that they're there for, they're there for 10 years. Even after Elimelech passes away, Naomi and her sons don't intend to return to Israel. The language used, they remain there, suggests that they, can, they had intended to be there in perpetuity, forever. Elimelech and his family, his sons, had given up their future in Israel. And then tragedy strikes. Naomi loses her husband. It's hard to overstate the immensity of this loss. In the context, a husband is a provider and a protector. He's the one who brings food to the table and protects the family from evil men who would do evil things to women and children. But Naomi has two sons. This is her inheritance. This is her future. These are the people who can provide for her. And culturally, they would. They would take care of of their mother, they would provide. But tragedy strikes again. Naomi's sons die. And now she's truly vulnerable. She has no husband to provide for her. She has no sons to provide for her. She's older in life, so remarriage is most likely not an option. She is truly on her own. This tragedy is deep, and it's real, and it breaks her heart. This is the context of the story that we walk into. Naomi's tragic tale, her vulnerability, the fact that she could be hurt and oppressed by any around her. This, and then more broadly, we see that this is during the time of the judges. Society at large is doing what is right in their own eyes. Things don't look good. But even in the midst of her pain and suffering, Naomi models something for us. So let's read Ruth 1, 6 through 22. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they went to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I love this book. (laughs) It is my favorite in the Old Testament, I think. (laughs) Naomi's pain is palpable. She's lost everything. She doesn't pretend that her losses are insignificant. And they were close as a family. Naomi says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In other words, if the Lord treated her daughter-in-laws the way that her daughter-in-laws had treated her, they would be blessed. This is a compliment of the highest order and perhaps not the relationship we all have with our in-laws. These women love one another. This makes their parting painful. But it begs the question, why does Naomi insist that Ruth and Orpah return to Moab and their gods? Why would anyone encourage a pursuit of false deities when they know the truth? I think the answer is that Naomi is trusting in worldly wisdom, wisdom, perhaps like her husband Elimelech. It can't be overstated how vulnerable these women were. They need someone to provide. They need someone to protect. They need security and peace and rest. And so it makes all the logical sense in the world for these two young women to return to their mother's house and remarry in the land of their origin. Makes all the sense. All worldly wisdom would say, yeah, do that. That makes sense. But Naomi's practicality is blinding her to the reality of God's eternal perspective. She's encouraging Ruth and Orpah to return to false gods. She thinks that they would be better off without her and without the Lord. It's easy to fall into this kind of thinking. How often do we think about, okay, well, does this make sense? Will will this be profitable for me or will it not? But God's wisdom is not worldly wisdom. 
So for those of us who claim to be Christians, who place our faith in Christ, we ought to have a history of making decisions that don't make any sense to people who aren't. We should have a history of making decisions that make no sense in the world's eyes. This is going to look different for all of you in your particular contexts. For some people, it could be as simple as, I'm not going to work 70 hours this week because I want to see things through the eternal perspective. I want to invest time with my family, with my church family, with people who don't know Christ and share the good news of what he's done. For others, it might be as simple as, I'm not going to go to that happy hour after work because I know it's a temptation for me. Even though networking and building rapport with people you work with would have real-world benefit for you. Perhaps it's thinking about missions and saying, oh, I will send money, but I would never go. Perhaps some here ought to make a decision to leave worldly comfort here to go abroad and be discomforted. None of these things make sense from a worldly perspective, but we ought to be thinking with God's perspective, not our own. The other thing that arises from this text is Naomi believes all this hardship is from the Lord. She says, It is exceedingly bitter for me that for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She holds the Lord responsible for everything that's happened to her. And she's right. The Lord is sovereign over all things. Everything that happens, happens under God's watch. This is the necessary consequence of thinking that God is perfectly sovereign. We don't know why he's brought this tragedy into Naomi's life. We don't know if he was disciplining Elimelech and his family, or it's just the consequences of living in a broken world marred by sin. We don't know God's reason, but he's still on the throne He's still in charge. He still has the power to do whatever he pleases. So it begs the question, does he do evil things against us? The answer is no. God does not do evil, nor, is he, nor does he sin like man sins. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And at the same time, he's in control. Isaiah 45, 7 tells us, this is the Lord speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So how do we square this circle? How do we hold these two verses together that seem like a paradox, seem like two conflicting ideas? This is one of the most difficult questions in Christianity. Because how it's translated in our everyday life is something along the lines, which I'm sure you've heard, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Or more simply, like we said in the beginning, God, where are you? And I want this question in the back of your minds as we walk through this text. And I I also want to say that it's not wrong to ask it. It's not wrong to ask the question of God, where are you? The Psalms are replete with a type of literature that we would call lament, crying out to the Lord, asking him to deliver us, a complaint to the Lord, but trusting him to fulfill his promises to us. It's not wrong to ask. And this is what Naomi's doing. This is her desperate cry. I left full, but I've come back empty. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. 
And so she wonders, the question behind her statement, where is God? Now, he's there. He's always there. And we're going to see this in the text. And he's working for good purposes. But we can't shortcut Naomi's pain. It's real. And the Lord welcomes her and all of us to bring that to him. So as we walk through suffering as ourselves or with people around us, don't try to shortcut it. Don't try to move on too quickly. The consequences of living in a broken world are going to mean that we face suffering in a real way, and we ought to bring that to the Lord. Nevertheless, while Naomi can't see God's purposes in her pain yet, even though she has this imperfect faith, she's, she's got some bitterness, she's clearly upset, she still moves towards him. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi feels that she's been dealt with bitterly, but she doesn't doubt who's in control. When she tries to leave her daughters-in-law and blesses them, she asks the Lord to bless them because she still recognizes he's in charge. And when she hears that the Lord has brought food to his people, she says, I'm going to go. So even in her bitterness and her pain and her dependence on worldly wisdom, she still moves towards God. She trusts the Lord with imperfect faith. It's our first point. She turns to the Lord with imperfect faith. So for us, we ought to remember that we don't have to clean ourselves up before going to Christ. We don't have to stay away from God until we've reached some level of having it together to turn to him. You don't have to be where you think you ought to be in order to lay your burdens down at the foot of the cross. So come. Christ begs you to come. Don't wait. Come. Come stumbling and staggering into the arms of a God who loves you. Here's the thing. Nobody has it together enough to, to, to make themselves justified into the Lord. I don't care if you've been a Christian for one minute or 100 years you still don't have it together enough to stand in the presence of God without Christ interceding on your behalf. Our faith doesn't need to be perfect. Our theology doesn't need to be precise. Our actions don't need to be morally impeccable. We need only come to the Lord in our need. We need to turn to the Lord with imperfect faith, as Naomi does here. And so if you're here and you say to yourself, well, these Christians, they've really, they're really holy, and I'm just, if they knew, if they had known what I've done, they wouldn't say come. If they knew what I'd done, if the Lord knew what I'd done, he wouldn't welcome me with open arms. The reality is, is if you took all the thoughts I had this week and put them on a screen behind me, you'd all be horrified at the things that come out of the depths of my heart doesn't matter if I'm up here or sitting in that pew, we still need Christ to intercede on our behalf. And so if you're waiting, if you feel unclean, if you feel overly shamed, don't wait. Christ calls you to come and embrace him, to put your faith in him, to turn from your sin and trust him. But as Naomi stumbles back towards the Lord, towards home, we arrive at the next part of our story. You see this in the beginning, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. 
And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And he answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean among the sheaves after your reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and native land to come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed her young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She had also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice for you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the next scene of the story. Naomi and Ruth have to eat. Naomi's older, and so Ruth says, I'm going to go work, and she ends up in the field of Boaz. And what we see from this story is that when Naomi came back to Bethlehem saying, I went away full, but I've come back empty, she's forgetting one thing. She's forgetting 
someone who will become more precious to her than seven sons. She's forgetting Ruth. Ruth who clung to her. Ruth who said, do not urge me to leave you, for where you die, I will die. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. May the Lord do such and such to me if I do not remain with you. So Naomi's thinking she's come back empty, but she's come with someone who loves her with a persistent, never-giving-up kind of love. And from the moment Ruth opens her mouth in this story, we see that she believes in the Lord. She says this out loud when she trades the Moabite gods for Naomi's god, but it's not the first thing that outs her as a follower of Yahweh. No, it's her persistent love of Naomi. Her love of Naomi does not quit. It does not stop. It persists beyond all expectation. She leaves her home, her false gods, her family, everything she's known for Naomi and for the Lord. This is love. The Hebrew word is hesed, which is a kind of loving kindness, covenantal love, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. It cannot be broken. And it's often used to refer to God's covenant love for his people, that the Lord will love his people no matter what they've done because he is the Lord and that's who he is. Ruth's love for Naomi is imaging the father's love for his people. And that shows us that Ruth really is a woman of God. Her love of Naomi is a foreshadowing, an imaging, a pointing to God's love for us shown through Christ. Ruth leaves everything to love Naomi. And she confirms that the Lord is her God by saying so. In the same way, Christ left everything to love us. We are in this Advent season. Christ ruled and reigned in heaven, fully powerful. And he leaves all of that, gives it up to take on the form and flesh of a servant to be born in a dirty, dingy barn. That's what we're celebrating in about 22 days, his birth in a barn full of manure and stinky animals. The Lord of the universe leaves the throne for that. That's how much he loves us. So when Scripture says that, in Deuteronomy 23.3, Scripture says that Moabites are not allowed into the assembly until the 10th generation. And Ruth is a Moabite. But what she's showing us by her actions here is though she might be a Moabite by, Moabite by flesh, she's reborn by the Spirit. You see, being a part of God's people was never about race or culture or family or who your parents were or what land you're tied to. It's about faith and the one true God. Romans 9, 6 through 8 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Quick rabbit trail. Did you know that Abraham wasn't Jewish? Sounds nuts. He's of the household of Terah and Canaan. Until God calls him out of that land to become the father of a great nation. He's not born a Jew. He's made one by God. God calls him and Abraham believes God's call and it's credited to him as righteousness. It's not about human ties. It's about faith and what God has done 
on our behalf. And so Ruth demonstrates this same kind of faith. How do we know that Ruth is a child of the promise, even though she's not a child of the flesh? Because she claims Yahweh as her God, and she demonstrates it in the way that she loves Naomi. Word and deed, faith and works, fruits of the Spirit. So Ruth doesn't just go back with Naomi, loving her that way. She goes even further. She works. So it's said about her that she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's gleaning in a field. This is hard physical labor. This is food on the ground, and you're bent over, picking it up all day for hours. And this is what she has to do for months to support herself and Naomi. Naomi, we assume, is not able to do this for herself, so Ruth does it for her. But she's not the only one caring for Naomi in this story. God is too, and he's working through human agents. You see, Boaz is God's chosen instrument of provision. Boaz blesses and believes. He says to his workers, the Lord be with you. They say, the Lord bless you. He provides and he protects. He tells Ruth, don't go to another field unless somebody assaults you. It's all too easy to think about how a young woman could be taken advantage of in the middle of nowhere in a field by evil men. And Boaz says, stay here. I will protect you. He provides and he protects. He pulls out sheaves from the, the crops, the barley crops, to leave them on the ground for Ruth to gather. He's generous and gentle. The law required men like Boaz to allow sojourners to glean in the fields, but it doesn't require him to feed her lunch more than she can eat. It doesn't require him to provide more than she needs. He goes beyond what's required. He's not obeying just the letter of the law. He's obeying the spirit of the law. Boaz is a man in authority. He's given wealth and power. He's clearly managing several workers. But he recognizes that while he has authority, he's also under authority. He uses his power to bless, protect, provide, and bestow generosity. So how do we apply Ruth and Boaz to our own lives? It's simple. We be like Boaz and we be like Ruth because they give us pictures of Christ-like love and work. Persist in love for one another beyond what's reasonable. Labor for each other's benefit. And if you have authority of any type, as a parent, as a boss, as a military officer, whatever the case may be, know that that authority has been given to you to serve the Lord and for the benefit of the people under your authority. This section of Naomi and Ruth's tale exhorts us to love people like the Lord loves us. This is what Boaz and Ruth are doing. They're loving like the Lord loves us. So first observation from the text, turn to the Lord with imperfect faith like Naomi. Second, love people like the Lord loves us as we see in Boaz and Ruth. And third, remember that the Lord is with his people always we see that Ruth's love and Boaz's provision start to open Naomi's eyes to the reality that God has not forgotten her. Naomi says, may he, be ble- he Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Her heart is starting to turn. How is the Lord turning her heart? Through the provision of Boaz and the love of Ruth. Naomi begins to hope again in the Lord. 
she recognizes the Lord being kind, that he hasn't forgotten her or Elimelech and his sons. She's changing from bitterness to fuller belief. I ask you to be mindful of the question, God, where are you in the midst of Naomi's tragic tale? And he's always there. See, the Lord sovereignly uses Naomi's tragedies to move her back home with Ruth, and he cares and provides for her the entire time. Notice these things from the text, key details. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They don't come in winter when there's no food. They don't come after the harvest when everything's been gathered up. Providentially, the Lord dictated that they would come during the harvest where they could find food to sustain them through the winter. This isn't happy accident. This is the Lord's sovereign hand. Later, we see that Ruth sets out, and she happened to come to the part of the field that belongs to Boaz. You could translate that as, you could literally translate the Hebrew, as luck would have it, she ended up in Boaz's field. But it's not luck. It's God's sovereign hand. There are many fields where it could have gone terribly wrong for Ruth. But the Lord takes her to that field, to Boaz's field, who is a redeemer of Elimelech's family. Notice, too, that Ruth and Boaz, as they love people like the Lord loves people, this is the Lord providing for Naomi. He uses means, the Lord uses human agents to accomplish his will. If we think about the time of judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, it can be hard to see God in the midst of horror, but he's always doing a million things we can't see. In Naomi's case, the Lord provided for her and used her tragedy to bring her back home to the Lord's covenant people. So for those of us that are enduring pain and tragedy now, and we ask rightly, fairly, God, where are you? Here. He's here with us. This is the answer. Know that Christ doesn't stand far off and remote from our suffering and from our problems, but he actually entered in, in the incarnation as a human being, to endure suffering with us. He stands side by side with his people, enduring the same kinds of pain, rejected by friends, punished by enemies, murdered on a cross. He stood alone after the Garden of Gethsemane before his enemies and still endured it. This is how much the Lord identifies with us. John Newton says it, this way. He knows our sorrows, not merely as he knows all things, but as one who has been in our situation, and who, though without sin himself, endured when upon earth earth inexpressibly more for us than he will ever lay upon us. He has sanctified poverty, pain, disgrace, temptation, and death by passing through these states. And in whatever states his people are, They may by faith have fellowship with him in their sufferings, and he will by sympathy and love have fellowship and interest with them in theirs. Suffering is never pointless for the Christian. It's a key differentiation between Christianity and things like atheism. For the atheist, there is no purpose in your suffering. There's no purpose in death. We're here for a time, and then we go. But for a Christian we see that suffering has 
purpose. In Naomi's life, it led her back to Israel with Ruth as a member of God's people. And this week, we don't even cover the sheer volume of what the Lord is doing through this suffering. We will see more next week. Regardless, Naomi's suffering had purpose. So we, when we ask God, where are you? He says, I'm here with you. I came to earth to so identify with you that I would suffer this from the same types of injustice and pains that you do. But we also ask, why? Why? Why do you let this suffering happen, Lord? In Naomi's case, we can see parts of the why because it's been given to us. But if you were to come to me and say, Ben, I am in great suffering, why? The truth is, is I can't see it all. I don't rightly know the details of why the Lord has allowed whatever the thing may be, but I do trust that he does all things well, that he is good. Consider the cross. The cross, perhaps, the yes, the most evil thing to ever happen under the sun, the crucifixion of the perfect man for something he did not do. This is vile evil. This is horrible. This is suffering. This is pain. This is death. Why? Because with the devil's greatest triumph, the Lord undoes death for his people forever. This is what the Lord does. He reverses. He takes things that we see as awful and wicked, and he uses them for our good and his glory. A pastor once told a story that stuck with me. He had a young daughter who had some medical challenges, and they had to do some testing to find out what was wrong. The testing was incredibly invasive and painful. So she sits on the table She's crying out to her parents, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting me suffer? And they hold her and they say, because we love you. Because we love you. Because we know we need to find out what's wrong so we can address the problem. That's what the Lord does in the suffering of his people. The Lord was with Naomi. And the Lord is with his people still today no matter what. Trust him that he knows what he's doing. Hope in the Lord in your sorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for being a Lord that is near. In this season of Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, the fact that you loved us enough to come. And at the same time, for those of us who are in the darkness waiting for deliverance, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to endure that you would help us see Christ, that you would keep us steadfast in faith. We pray that you would continue to make clear to us day by day the reality of your love. And no matter what we suffer, we know that we have a God who cares, who loves, and invites us to come to him with our hurts, with our loss, with our complaint. We pray that the reality of what Christ has done on our behalf would be clear to us and moments of deep distress. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.